welcome back to the wise man's page the daily podcast where we read patrick rothbus's the wise man's fear page by page this is page 537 chapter 80 tone the next day martin left with hespi and dayton while tempe and i remained behind to keep an eye on the camp with nothing else to occupy my time i started gathering extra firewood then i searched for useful herbs in the undergrowth and brought water from the nearby spring Then I busied myself by unpacking, sorting, and rearranging everything in my travel sack. Tempe disassembled his sword, meticulously cleaning and oiling all the pieces. He didn't look bored, but then again, he never looked like anything. By midday, I was nearly mad with boredom. I would have read, but I hadn't brought a book. I would have sewn pockets into my threadbare cloak, but I didn't have any spare cloth. I would have played my lute, but a trooper's lute is designed to carry music through a noisy taproom. Out here, the sound of it could carry for miles. I would have chatted with Tempe, but trying to have a conversation with him was like playing catch with a well. Still, it seemed to be my only option. I walked over to where Tempe sat. He had finished cleaning his sword and was making small adjustments to the leather grip. Tempe? He laid aside his sword and came to his feet. He stood uncomfortably close to me, with barely more than eight inches of space between us. Then he hesitated and frowned. It wasn't much of a frown, barely a thinning of the lips and a slight line between his eyebrows, but on Tempe's blank sheet of a face, it stood out like a word written in red ink. He backed away from me by two good paces, then eyed the ground between us and stepped forward slightly. Understanding dawned on me. Tempe? How close to Adem stand? That's the page. I'm Jeremy. I'm Jordana. I'm Nick. And this page proves that what I was talking about a while ago about Tempe assessing the distance that he should stand to people was right. And Jeremy was wrong. So Jeremy, uh, suck it and die. Charming. I knew you were going to say this and I'm sorry. I still, I think you're right that Adam people do stand uncomfortably close to not for, by the standards of not Adam people. I think that's correct. I don't think that's necessarily what he was doing in the previous scene, but that's absolutely what he's doing here. It's fine, Jeremy. You can be confidently wrong as much as you want. It's like that famous song by Pink Floyd about Jeremy, comfortably wrong. Uh, I really like the detail on this page. Foth spends his free time basically, you know, fiddling by unpacking his, uh, travel sack and Tempe disassembles his sword which is a like a useful thing to do in your downtime and also something I have never seen depicted in a book before or a movie for that matter swords do come apart you unscrew them from the pummel and you know if you really feel like it, you can like take the blade out of the the hilt uh and you know remove the cross piece and like remove it into its component parts Uh, But that's not something that I've seen depicted in fiction before ever to my recollection. And it serves the dual purpose of showing that Rothfuss has done some research into like what it takes to maintain a sword in good condition and also informs Tempe's character in contrast to Quoth because Quoth spends his downtime. He's like trying to find useful things he can do. And once he runs out of useful things he can think of to do, he drives himself crazy trying to come up with something else to do, which is what I would do. Whereas Tempe is a lot more Zen about it. He uh, is, you know, meticulously and carefully 
you know, keeping the tool that's going to keep him alive on this dangerous mission in good repair. It reads to me a bit like how you'd have an awesome hitman lovingly cleaning and reassembling his gun in a movie. Yeah. And like, that's pretty common, right? Like you see people like oiling and disassembling and putting back together a gun in an action movie. Like that's a fairly common thing to see to like show that a character is competent and badass and give them something to do while they're delivering exposition. But I've never seen it in a movie where people are using swords. Missed opportunity. The the purpose of disassembling a sword, I assume, is still just to clean it, right? Yeah, and like, you know, tune it up. Uh, because like, if you hit something with a sword a bunch, because it's screwed together at the pummel, uh, like anything that's screwed together, uh, over time, like, it, it gets loose. So you do have to like tighten your pummel on occasion. And... Uh, I'm sure there's other things that you have to do too. I am no expert. You got to sharpen it. Obviously you got to oil it. Yeah. When, when we did fencing, you could like adjust the cage uh, around your rapier. You could like adjust the cage so that it, it, it wouldn't be so tight around your fingers, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I'm sure that you, over time you would have to replace or repair the, the leather or whatever else it is that's wrapped around Mm. the hilt. Uh, so yeah, there's like stuff you got to do to maintain a sword in good condition. I see. Very cool. And it, and it's like stuff that you wouldn't necessarily need to take it to a specialist to do in the same way that like everybody I know who owns a bike also understands like the basics of how to repair a bike. Like everyone who owns a car knows or should know how to change, you know, change a flat tire if they need to. Same kind of thing. You should know the basics of how to like oil and take apart and like tighten the pummel on your sword. I think it's supposed to signal that Tempe is more of a professional or like culturally, because we haven't seen anybody else, you know, Dayton doesn't oil his sword. Right. But Dayton clearly owns one. mm -hmm. So Dayton's, I think this is something that is supposed to be uncommon, or at least it's supposed to signal something about Tempe's character that he's doing it. Yeah. Cause another thing about like Dayton and Hespi because she's described as like looking a lot like him. We know that Dayton's armor is, first of all, it wasn't custom made for him. Like it's, it's thrown together out of odd bits and pieces and it's a little rusty, which tells us, I mean, what it tells me is that he probably got it secondhand and assembled it piecemeal rather than like buying a full suit of armor for himself. Cause he can't afford one because armors or he takes odd parts from the people he kills. Yeah. Something like that. Because he scavenges the parts because he can't afford a suit of armor because a suit of armor, a brand new one is very expensive. Like one of the most expensive things that like a medieval person could buy many, many times over the yearly wage of the average person. And then of course, with an expensive object like that, you want to keep it in good repair. So either Dayton is like a slob who doesn't care about his equipment, which is why it's rusty, or that's how he got it. Cause that's the best he could do. I just want to shout out the funny turn of phrase that trying to have a conversation with Tempe is like playing catch with the well. That's very funny. I think we've all felt like that at some point, trying to make conversation and just not not getting anything back. Yeah, that's a good metaphor because it communicates an idea, a familiar idea in a fresh way very clearly. Especially if anybody out there has like been on a dating app and you're like really trying to keep a conversation going and the other person is giving you nothing to work with, that is like trying to have a con- trying to play catch with a well. 
I am out of things. Well then, we do have a letter today. The mailbag is back. This is from our good friend SNC, who writes on chapter 71 and the purpose of certain interludes. Hello, pagers. I would like to share my theory about why chapter 71 is placed where it is, and more broadly, why certain interludes are placed where they are. I think several interludes in both books are placed after Quoth has enjoyed a run of success to bring the reader back down to earth and remind the reader of Quoth's ultimate failure, and often foreshadow something bad happening to Quoth when we return to the narrative. In chapter 13 of Name of the Wind, Quoth has just finished a sequence where he met Abinthai, learned about many things, including sympathy, and excelled at them, and overheard Ben explaining to Quoth's parents that he ought to go to the university. After chapter 13, Quoth almost kills himself trying to call the name of the wind. Ben stops teaching him magic. Ben leaves the troop, and finally his parents and troop are killed. In chapter 45 of Name of the Wind, Quoth has just finished a sequence where he got into the university, made some good friends, humiliated him, and got away with it with a light sentence, managed to turn his whipping into a spectacle, and began his relationship with Master Kilvin. In chapter 46, Quoth fails to get Master Elodin to teach him. In 88 of Name of the Wind, Quoth has just finished a sequence where he saved Dennis' life, killed the Dracus, and saved the town of Trebin, helped Nina, gained information about the Chandrian, humiliated Ambrose by calling the name of the wind, avoiding being expelled from a drill discovered the path of the archives in the Underthing. In Chapter 88, he is unable to use sympathy against the Skin Dancer and is almost killed, reminding us of his failure. In 46 and 47 of Wise Man's Fear, Quoth has just finished a sequence where he got Dennis ring back, humiliated Ambrose by burning his rooms and ended the malfeasance against him, gained information about the Chandra from Nina, got close to him and Will, reconciled with Debbie, made the arrow catch and impressed Mr. Kilvin, and financially became secure for the first time, and got off innocent from the charges brought against him during the trial. Soon after the interlude, he is forced to leave the university. I think Chapter 71 is the strongest example of this trend. Everything has been going Quoth's way for a while. He saved the mayor's life and gained his favor. He successfully courted Mellow and Lackless on the mayor's behalf, and he has been spending a lot of time with Denna, which culminates with them having an intimate conversation and almost kissing in Chapter 70. However, in Chapter 71, we are reminded of the thrice-locked chest and Quoth's seeming inability to open it. After we return to the narrative, soon afterwards comes his fight with Denna. Thanks for the podcast and hope you're all doing well. During your break, best regards, signed SN. That was a lot to take in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... I guess for me, it's even more general and less specific than that, which is that the the interludes come at a place where it were like a natural break in the in the story where like an episode of Quoth's life has come to a close or like a section uh, has kind of re- concluded. And those sections just naturally include a kind of, you know, story structure in miniature, a rise and fall in which he experiences triumphs and uh, setbacks. So I don't think that it's necessarily specifically the case that the interludes are there to like bring us down from Quoth's highs. Cause like they don't always end on a high, but just like they come at natural places where it's natural to like, want to take a pause and get out of Quoth's uh, the, the sort of the inner narrative because we're about to enter a new stage of it. But I think it's well-reasoned of SNC to point out that they do tend to seem to come after a string of successes and then remind us of failures. They're almost like memento moris. Um, And as you like to say, Jeremy, it's a reminder that he's not a Mary Sue, that he is fallible, and that ultimately he has failed. We've talked about this before, but I think a big part of why these books work so well is the insertion of the frame narrative and that we know that he's at his lowest point ever when the book begins and as he's telling the story, more or less. And the, you know, also the the counter path, the counter journey that he's going on in the in the frame narrative. Um, 
So I think that it, it is a good bit of uh, observation, SNC, whether or not it's always after a string of successes is, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think Jeremy's right in that they come at natural act breaks, but I do think that they serve an important purpose to keep him grounded and remind us, especially after a string of him being the most perfect boy, uh, that even the most perfect boy must have a fall from grace. I don't really have too say. much to add to that. I mostly agree with both you and Jeremy. That's because we are a podcast of perfect harmony. Ah, I see. Is that how that works? I do have one note just on the way Nick read that letter. And that is that when you were reading parts of that letter, it was almost like you'd hit fast forward. Like that was crazy. Because like you read so much so quickly. I don't know what you're talking about. I read it at normal speed. And then in post-production, we sped it up for comedic effects. You're a machine. Listener, what theory do you believe about uh, Nick's uh, vocal capabilities? Write in and tell us at pagethewind.gmail.com. Let the record show that uh, I do enjoy doing Gilbert and Sullivan's patter songs at karaoke. And also like all the Eminem songs. (laughs) Well, that's just because you have incredible diction. (laughs) Is it? What does it say about me that I would rather talk about my karaoke prowess in terms of <laughs> Gilbert and Sullivan patter songs than my ability to do Eminem. <laughs> yeah, that you can take uh, the kid out of the theater, but you can't take the theater out of the theater kid. Yes. Yeah, that. <laughs> Wise words. Wise words. Well, let's wrap it up and we'll take the listener out of the podcast and put the podcast into the listener on tomorrow's episode of Page of 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 the the, the when, when? <laughs> <laughs>